People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Christopher Willard is a clinical psychologist at Harvard Medical School and author of over a dozen books. He's an internationally sought-after speaker. He's presented at the American Psychological Association, TEDx, Harvard Medical School, and Learning in Brain Conferences. His professional network includes Google, HubSpot, Harvard, Medical School, Tufts, and Wesleyan, among others. He's written a new book called How We Grow Through What We Go Through. Hi, Chris. Welcome to Health Gig. Thank you. So we are so excited to be here with Dr. Christopher Willard, who's written a new book that's coming out the end of November called How We Grow Through What We Go Through, Self-Compassion Practices for Post-Traumatic Growth. We love the title of the book, but it's tools to help us grow from adverse experiences and trauma and different things. So we're thrilled to have you on the podcast to talk about that. But first, we want to know about you. We want to know where you're from, who you are, just a little bit about you. So tell us everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> all right. When did it all begin? When did it all begin? Right now I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I do about 1 million different things. I'm a clinical psychologist by training, but I do a lot of consulting and workshops, training therapists, working with parents, doing kind of self-help, self-improvement workshops, different places. So I travel a lot doing that kind of thing. I do a lot of writing. I've written books for grown-ups, like this new self-help book. I've written books for kids. I've written more professional and academic books. I do a lot of workshops and traveling, training therapists, training other people, working for different companies, doing consulting around mindfulness and self-care and resilience and performance in the workplace. So I do a lot of traveling is a big part of what I do as well. I teach at Harvard Medical School. I consult to just other sort of small and large institutions, hospitals, schools, things like that. And I have a lot of fun doing all these things. And then on top of it, I'm also a parent. I've got two little kids that you might hear stomping around at various points or screaming about what they do or don't want to do throughout the podcast and realistic sound effects. And all this got started a while ago. You know, part of my own journey was I have this real interest in mindfulness, this real interest in self-compassion. That's been a lot of the work that I've done over the years. And the way that I describe it is I never heard the word mindfulness growing up. It was not popular in the 80s, and yet it also keeps me really well employed now, which is great. But I had different kinds of experiences when I was little that were something kind of like mindfulness, like walking quietly in the woods or noticing different sounds in the forest or watching clouds disappear in the sky with my dad, things like that. And these were really powerful, and I always loved time in nature and things like this. It was really settling and grounding for me. And then when I was in college, I had some challenges with depression and anxiety and substances and things like that, and all those things we don't want our kids to be doing when they go off to college. And I dropped out of school for a couple of years and had a really very challenging time. And at some point along the way, my parents actually dragged me onto a mindfulness retreat with Thich Nhat Hanh back in the late 90s, oh, early wow. 2000s. I know, right? I mean, it was like pretty amazing for me. I'd gone, you know, basically like on this retreat when I was like 
maybe three or four days clean and sober and kind of pulling myself together. And then that just sort of changed everything for me from then on. Suddenly I felt more connected. I felt happier. I felt more creative. I felt more focused. And then from there was kind of hooked with the mindfulness bug and wanting to share it with other people in all these different ways over these past 22, 23 years or so since then. So that's all, wow. all that to where I am now, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you talk about, were you an atheist? Yeah. And, and is that something you talk about now or not so much? That was just all part about your growth. I'm sort of like, a, what's the saying? You know, like religion is people who are afraid of hell and spirituality is for those who've been there. So a little bit more on the spirituality <laughs> side. I don't know what I believe. I just know I believe like what works. Sometimes that's science. Sometimes that's prayer, even if I don't know who I'm praying to. Often it's meditation, reflection, even if I don't know what I'm listening to or listening for. I feel like there's something, you know, some kind of force out there. I still don't know what I believe. <laughs> Were your parents into mindfulness or how did they decide to take you to that? Yeah. They had started to get interested in this when I was sort of like in college, maybe, you know, seeking some of their own peace around worrying about their poor, you know, disaster of a son at the time. <laughs> right, like, right. So I think they were finding it really helpful for them to find some peace and acceptance in their lives. And that was when they were really into it. But they weren't when I was a kid. You know, it really was when I was older. And there happened to be this spot on this retreat. And they were like, that's it, you're coming with us. <laughs> and it that's worked. amazing. That is <laughs> yeah. so incredible. What inspired you to write the book? I know it's your life's work, but why the book and why now? I have always loved writing. Growing up, I wanted to be a writer. Like I was the kid in elementary school who, you know, they're like, write a one page story. And I'd hand in like 15 pages. And in retrospect, <laughs> I'm sure that was so annoying for my teachers. But, and then I was an English major. And I thought, you know, I was going to write the great American novel. And I've definitely not done that and probably won't. But I still love writing. And writing is how I learn. And writing is how I learn about what I want to learn about and synthesize information. And so one of the things I'd written about a lot before the pandemic was mindfulness and self-compassion, resilience and spirituality and topics like this and speaking about that and doing workshops on that. And then the pandemic began and suddenly it was like, I'm watching all my work dry up. I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm never going to work again. And then I started getting asked, will you do a talk on Zoom, you know, on resilience? Will you do a talk on trauma? Will you do a talk on how to get through this really difficult time of the pandemic? And of course, everything else going on, political instability and social upheaval and climate change and violence. And so I started doing a workshop about all those topics. Then I realized at some point, if I wrote this workshop down, I'd probably have a new book. And so I called up my <laughs> wow. agent and I said, hey, I've got this idea for a book about post-traumatic growth and resilience because I've got a workshop on it. What do you think? And she said, great, let's take it to your publisher. And that's how it got born <laughs> was because oh, of the great. pandemic and everything we've been through. So. so trauma is a big topic these days. Why does post-traumatic stress disorder seem to get so much press when it's actually might be trauma that we're talking about? This was really interesting to me because we're talking about trauma so much in these past few years and especially since the pandemic. And this is so important that we're talking about trauma in a different way and we're talking about it again. And yet also when I started looking into, you know, something like, oh my gosh, people want me to talk about trauma. I got to learn about this and starting to see most people actually that experience things that we think of as traumatic don't develop post-traumatic stress. And actually more people develop this idea of post-traumatic growth than they do develop post-traumatic stress. And a substantial number of people develop post-traumatic stress and also then go on to develop post-traumatic growth. Absolutely. Can you describe 
post-traumatic stress? I mean, we hear it, it's thrown around all the time, but you know, what is it? I was actually talking with a friend of mine about this. And I think in some ways there's been a little bit of a dilution of what it really means, right? We all have a sense of what it means, but really, you know, this friend was saying like, it's really just like a disruption of our nervous system, like based on bad experiences, like our brain and our bodies rewire themselves to adapt to what we think is a more dangerous world. If we're not living in a dangerous world, then it's not helpful for us. And so that means sometimes what we might call hypervigilance or having a hair trigger, right? Suddenly jumping, you know, when there's a sound or something like that, being a little bit more emotionally reactive than we want to, to situations or interactions that maybe remind us of the traumatic event or traumatic events, right? Whether that's in a relationship or in other aspects of life. It comes from feeling out of control. It comes from feeling helpless. So we're often seeking control. We're seeking to avoid situations that might trigger us and that can keep us safe, but it can also land us in danger in other ways. So it can also then start to turn into aggression, right? And it can turn into more anxiety and worry about things that we don't need to worry about. It can turn into kind of a depression and giving up and then symptoms like dissociation where we might feel something like an out-of-body experience basically would be sort of a short version of that or numbness things like that that we experience in the body and just kind of shutting down in a lot of ways. So these are some of the more common symptoms that we see out of trauma. To add to that, how do you define trauma itself? Yeah, and really it's an event where we feel like our life or our bodily integrity is in danger. And some people would add to that, you know, maybe some significant emotional integrity is in danger and we feel helpless and out of control. So it's so interesting. Trauma really is, and we do not have to go down this path, but hearing you, it's almost the same thing. Like stress doesn't really exist. It's just a reaction to things. Would you be able to go that next step and say trauma doesn't exist? It depends on where you are or not really because there is agreed upon trauma, particularly for children, correct? Trauma is just more of an extreme version of stress, like a really stressful event, you know, tips into being a traumatic event. It's sort of a continuum, really, I think is a way we can think about it. And it can also be like a single event. Like I think I might describe in the book, like this woman who, you know, mom was in a drunk driving accident, you know, when she was a baby, right? And then she's lived in a rural area. She wasn't found for hours until the EMTs found her. So there's the traumatic event of the accident, there's the traumatic event of her mom's death, but then there's the trauma of waiting to be rescued. And then there's the trauma of living a life without a mother, right? So there's the acute trauma and there's the ongoing trauma or like an illness is an ongoing trauma or the pandemic. I mean, these kinds of things, yeah where I want to be careful is one of the things that I heard a lot about in the pandemic, which I think is important to talk about is this idea of toxic positivity that like, oh, every cloud has a silver lining and like, oh, let's just practice a little more gratitude and we'll all be just fine. And sometimes people refer to this as like a spiritual bypass, right? I'm so enlightened. I just meditate my problems away. And it's like, that's not how it works, right? It's not about just sprinkle some gratitude on and we'll be fine. But the reason that's a problem is I think when people then don't feel amazing or don't feel like growth is happening, they feel shame or that they're doing it wrong or that there's something even more fundamentally broken about them. And so I really want to emphasize that all of this growth stuff is possible, but it just happens on really different timelines for everybody. It's very likely it'll happen, but for some people it happens quickly. Other people, it, it takes more time. But I think most people, when they work on it, they get there. And that's really hopeful to me, that if you do the work, you're really likely to see growth out of this. And if you don't do the work, then you probably won't. (laughs) Um, And that's really important, I think, to recognize. And when we talk about the work, you describe that as what? 
To me, the way I organized the book was everything in life and mental health is about mind, body, spirit, or mind, body, social, or biopsychosocial. So the book is basically like the first part is like, how do we learn how to care for and regulate our body so it's strong and healthy foundation? And then how do we work with our minds and our brains a little bit more so that we're shifting the way that we think about things, the way that we look at the world, the way that we process and problem solve? And then lastly, how do we look at our social lives and our spiritual lives, our relationships, whether that's to a higher power, if you believe in one, whether it's to other people, whether it's a therapist or whether it's a group of people or building a supportive network of people, or whether it's also rebuilding a healthy relationship to ourselves. Those three places are the places where I feel like when we start to do the work, we start to see results. And so bringing self-compassion and mindfulness to our bodies, right? So we can live in them again comfortably to our minds so that we can feel like, you know, what's that expression? You know, like if your mind's a dangerous neighborhood, you know, be careful, right? don't go there yeah. alone. And if you have a group of people that can be your support, we know that there's so much good research around healthy people really do lift us up and raise us up when we've got good peers and a good network of other people in our lives. Our emotions are contagious. What we call this is co-regulation. When we're around happy, stable people, we start to stabilize. When we're around dysregulated people, emotional people, over-emotional people, or toxic people, that we know is bad for us. It kind of pollutes us internally. Yeah. And being aware of that, and you're saying make choices, right? I guess sort of decide how you want to be. Is that what you're saying? And who you're sharing space with, that kind of idea? Exactly. And I think to me, real empowerment is when we have choices, right? One of the things trauma does, we are traumatized and we don't have choices. I don't have choice over what's happening to me if I'm sick or if I'm being assaulted or if I'm in an accident or these other kinds of events that can happen to all of us. One of the ways out of that is to feel like we're empowered in choices and especially in choices in our relationships is where we can really do a lot of healing so that we're not falling into those same traps again relationally or falling into those same traps in terms of our body and how we treat our body or falling into those same thinking traps in our mind that is saying the world is dangerous, don't trust anybody, you know, stay away from that. The only way through this is by numbing yourself by undereating or overeating or drugs or alcohol or avoidance or all these other things that we do so that we can feel choices. Like maybe I will make this choice today. Maybe it's healthy. Maybe it's not so healthy, but I'm going to make it anyway. But we're the one in the driver's seat. Like we're the one making that choice. It's not that the trauma is making that choice. And I think the message of the trauma making the choice, and especially maybe if there's a person or a system that traumatized us, then we really don't want that person making that choice for us. We really want to take that back. The book seems to have a lot of practical tools and techniques. So let's say you do have that crazy mind going. And what are some of the tools and techniques that you recommend in the book for that monkey mind? To me, one of the things I found most empowering in my life is the idea that I'm not my thoughts. And that is something that mindfulness practice and meditation has helped me to understand and realize is, oh, just because I'm thinking this doesn't mean that it's true. <laughs> and it really was such a game changer of, oh, like I'm not a terrible person. I'm not a terrible parent. I'm not a terrible therapist. Or maybe I am, but maybe I'm not. Just because my brain is telling me that I'm screwing this up doesn't mean that it's true. It might be true. But it actually even just helps to be able to see maybe it's true and maybe it's not. 
And that has been so enlightening for me. So I don't have to believe that like inner critic that we all have. And yeah. those with trauma, that inner critic is often so strong and kind of installed by not so helpful people in their lives. When our sensory triggers continue to alarm us to dangers well after the event, I think you kind of touched on this, that is past. How can we begin distinguishing between a real and a perceived danger? And I think you're kind of touching on that now, right? Absolutely. And this is where like getting into that, we talk about mindfulness as sort of getting into the moment, seeing things clearly, seeing things as they are. One example I use in the book was there's a guy I worked with who'd survived a suicide bombing and he had tremendous survivor's guilt, among other things. He also had a hair trigger, right? He'd walk into his home with his girlfriend and something would fall off the shelf and he'd jump out of his skin and, and it would really scare his girlfriend. One of the things that we were doing to manage that trigger was actually Again, to get him back into the driver's seat, the trauma was making him jump out of his skin and pay attention to every sound and be hypervigilant, as we call it. But by learning like a mindfulness practice where he was then deliberately, I'm going to walk into the house and I'm going to just count to five sounds around me. I can hear the creaking of the chairs. I can hear the air conditioning on. I can hear the like, girlfriends listening to music in the distance, right? The oven clicking on, whatever that he was then actually consciously being hypervigilant. And when he could consciously turn that reaction on, then he could start to turn it down so that he was taking it over and it wasn't the trauma that was making him jump out of his skin every time his girlfriend sneezed. This kind of thing rewires our perceptual system, rewires our nervous system so that we're able to activate it and deactivate it. It's like, no, I'm not. I'm going to scan for danger on purpose. Okay, now I can shut that off. And instead of just having himself be scanning for danger all the time, which is exhausting to all of yeah. us too, to be on high alert like that. Rewiring and becoming in control of what's going on there rather than reacting. What do you say when people say you need a new story? Yeah, I mean, I think we can rewrite our stories and we can rewrite ourselves as survivor rather than victim, right? That's the most sort of classic rewrite of a story. We can write more characters into the story. You know, often we blame ourselves if I'd done this or I'd done that. And the truth is, yeah, maybe, but also this was a larger context of let's look at all the other characters in this story. Let's look at the context of the story. Let's look at the larger historical forces at play even that were happening in your story for you. And you don't have to be the main character who caused these things to happen, that it was even multi-determined, I think, is important and even more realistic than saying to someone, none of this was your fault. That can actually feel invalidating sometimes. Sometimes it's very validating, but for other people to feel like, okay, some of this is mine, a lot of it's not, but I can put myself with the right size in this larger story. And then maybe we help them move from there to, you know, this actually really wasn't about me <laughs> at right. all. But sometimes it takes that intermediate step to help someone write a more accurate story. I write a lot of books. It takes a lot of drafts to write a book. So That's what I, we were thinking <laughs> and to ask you about that because you are a writer and you're saying creative writer. I mean, how often do you think you have to change a story? Would you recommend somebody to rewrite their story or rewrite their new book throughout I, I their think life? Absolutely. I, I think it's so important that we always be in the process of rewriting and that we, you know, as a therapist, this is what I do with people is we write their story together and put it into words. And actually, one of the reasons I love writing in words is that when we talk about our traumas, big and small, 
we actually change how we feel. Something happens in the brain. Actually, if you put people in an MRI machine, you ask them to look at emotional scenes, you can see a big emotional reaction happening in the brain in what's called the limbic system, which is the emotional part of the brain. And then you say, I want you to label that emotion that you're feeling, and you actually watch the blood flow out of the limbic system and flow into the thinking parts of the brain and flow into the decision-making parts of the brain. But before we're able to label that emotion, it's just in the impulsive, more kind of dinosaur lizard part of the brain. So we say to little kids, we say, use your words, right? It actually makes a difference. I say as a therapist, how does that make you feel? Or sometimes I even say, you know, it sounds like you're feeling very angry at your mother, right? Again, this is cliche <laughs> therapy stuff. What that's doing is actually then activates those parts of the brain in someone that pull the blood out of the emotional parts of the brain. So we literally write a story. We're literally not shutting off the emotion, but the emotion's not quite so powerful. And the rest of our more logical, reasonable brain is actually working too. So we have really our whole brain becomes active not just the emotional part of the brain. So that's my like, oh, I love writing in the science of writing. <laughs> but that's some of what's really happening as we rewrite our stories for ourselves. And adding in there that idea that you were talking about creating not a toxic environment around you, you know, finding people that you can share and feel safe about that, right? We need those people that we feel safe with who co-regulate with us, who change our nervous system through the quality of their presence. We've been with charismatic people or therapists or podcast hosts who can do this for us, right? That we just feel settled in this really different way. You talk about being in nature. Uh, yeah. and how that can really affect our health positively. I have a park behind me. I'm lucky, <laughs> but not everybody is, right, and lives in cities and things. And how can people who are not close to nature find the joy of being in nature? And just to add to that, Dora and I are really spending a lot of time now adding that to what we really believe. Like we kind of are getting to this point where we just believe we are nature. <laughs> this idea yeah. that we're separate has caused so much problems. We'd love to hear you talk all about that. Absolutely. I mean, I got so excited. I sort of, and this is, I think, in the body chapter, sort of the importance of spending, and also the pandemic. So it was like, uh, we can only be outside, right? <laughs> so we're all, I was actually with my son. You know, we're driving out to take a nature walk a few months ago. I've been telling this story. I've been dining out on this one for a while. We're driving out to a nature preserve and he's like, where are we going? And I was like, oh, we're going on a nature walk. And he goes, nature walk? Is that a pandemic thing? And I was like, dude, no, like nature walks are awesome. <laughs> but, you know, when we're in nature, the shapes of nature and they're replicated in great architecture, but the fractals that we see in trees and on coastlines, these actually soothe our nervous system. If you think about a forest with the trees going upward, that's what actually the Gothic cathedrals of Europe were actually imitating. It's why we feel peaceful in an incredible Gothic cathedral. The Potala Palace in Tibet is supposed to look like the Himalayas. Architecture that imitates nature, it brings us at ease. It induces what's called awe, which is this feeling of wonder that we know is actually linked to compassion and regulating the nervous system. So these kinds of things are amazing. And then we know that being around the color green is actually really regulating. The phytokines are these chemicals that plants release that regulate our nervous system and make us happy, right? So if you can't get out in nature, like maybe have some 
posters on your wall, maybe have some plants in your room, even just a dumb screensaver of your favorite beach. Like this is why we do this as humans. It really does help regulate us. Looking out the window, people in a hospital, if they've, if they've got a window that looks out over green, they heal faster than people who look out over a brick wall. Like it's really incredible what it does to our ability to heal physically and psychologically, just spending time in nature, appreciating nature, and looking even at just pictures of nature. You know, a question that we did want to make sure we asked you was, have your experiences as a psychologist and a parent informed your writing? Yeah, I kind of joke in some ways, like, you know, the first book I wrote was about kids, and it was a few years before I had kids, and I'm kind of like, throw away that first book. Um, <laughs> but, um, actually, it's, it's got some good stuff in it, but a little bit maybe idealistic. How old are your children, Chris? They are four and eight right oh, now, so they great. are a lot of fun. Sweet. Yeah. So neat. So you threw away your first book, <laughs> and now yeah. being a parent has really changed the way you're looking at things? It has. I mean, I think I've just... It's been so much more fun than I ever thought. And I learned so much from my kids and kind of trying out material on them, yeah. especially <laughs> when I was doing more parenting oriented books. And they have really, you know, not just inspired great anecdotes that I get to dine out on and, and put in my books that I'm sure they'll be mortified when they're 15 and I'm still telling them. But they really help. Like they literally, you know, my son, one of the new kids books I wrote is, I wrote a book a few years ago with a friend of mine called Alpha Breaths. And it's about, it's like an ABCs of mindful breathing. And the sequel just came out a couple of weeks ago. Also, I've got a, a bunch of books coming out in a wow, right now. Wow, 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 great. Um, and he like wrote a bunch of the practices. He was like, dad, like, let's do a drawbridge breath. Like, let's do oh, a wow. pirate breath. I was like, amazing, <laughs> this is great. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. And, you know, other things like they go on and off being interested in mindfulness. Actually, it was sweet a few nights ago. My daughter said, we do an imitation. I was like, what? Like imitation of who? She's like, an imitation, an imitation. I was like, what do you want me to imitate? She's like, an imitation. And my son's like, she wants an imitation. imitation. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> so sweet. Oh. <laughs> They've been like doing them at night and they're like, do one about like being on a cloud, doing about this. I'm like, let's write a book about this together. And my son was, I like walked by the room more recently and he was like literally guiding her. He was like making oh. up a meditation, an oh. imitation for her. It was so oh, sweet as that. Um, I know. It's like so amazing to me, you know, and then it's still like two days later, he like whacks her in the head with yeah, my right, right, right. Book. You yeah. know, it's like, what are you going to do? Right. Um, <laughs> it's something sinking in, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see. that's pretty awesome. Yeah. You're so animated and so fun to watch. How is it for you to write and then present? I love both writing and speaking. And I wrote that first book and they said, okay, you got to go do some public speaking. And I was honestly like, no, like no way. I do not want to <laughs> do public speaking. It is terrifying to me. And now I absolutely love it. I think I've done six talks this week. <laughs> wow. I do, you know, easily a hundred talks a year. And I was never like a drama kid. I was never any of those things, but it's become its own creative process public speaking, and it's become its own editing process. So I try out new material and it's actually kind of fun that there's something in one of my books that the editors were like, we're going to cut this paragraph. And I said, actually don't, because when I go and I do that part in a talk, everyone leans in and writes it down, you know? So that means that it resonates for people. Yeah. 
I find both of them to be very creative and complement each other. Yeah. How much of the wisdom and practices found in the book are based on spirituality as opposed to science? I feel like all these practices are scientifically validated spiritual practices, which I guess is hopefully not avoiding, you know, the <laughs> question or the best of know, both worlds. Um, yeah. And I'm a big believer. I've actually thought about right you sort of mentioned the atheist thing at the beginning. I've got a book proposal that I'll write someday, but it's like an atheist's argument for religion. Awesome. <laughs> um, because it's like what do we do in spirituality? It's like gratitude, whether it's saying grace or whether it's in other religions practicing gratitude or practicing kindness and generosity or alms or charity or, you know, whatever it is we call it in whatever spiritual tradition, we know those things are good for us. We know that praying, like whether you believe in someone or something or not, we know that that settles us down and helps us set our intentions. There's research behind that. It's goal setting. I mean, we know pilgrimages are important. We know that setting aside quiet time and meditation and contemplation, which exists in every religion, we know that that's good for us. So it's like, we know that being in community is so important. We know that singing together, that chanting together, that these things regulate us so we know that Outside of the ideology and belief systems of religion, we know that the practices of religion are very, very good for our mental and physical health. And so I think that to me kind of blows my mind when I start to look at that. And someday I'll do a book on that. So no one listening, steal that, please, because that's something I want to... <laughs> that would be really <laughs> interesting. It would be a great book. Were you raised in a religion? Yeah, kind of nominally Catholic, but it was like, oh, the grandparents are here. We're going to church um, you know, <laughs> kind, of, kind of thing, Christmas and Easter and stuff like that. And they kind of gradually became more Unitarian as we got older. And my sister and I got into kind of middle school and high school. And I really enjoyed the Unitarian thing. From there, increasingly Buddhist into, yeah. you know, when I was in college and they got into meditation and mindfulness and stuff. So before my mom died, they were going on mindfulness retreats and Buddhist retreats and things like that. So they, they evolved. What was your mom's yeah. name? Her name was Anne, and she was yeah. a therapist. She was also oh. a psychologist. I, okay. It's actually very sweet. As she went into retirement, I was like subletting <laughs> my office from her and gradually awesome. moved in and took over her lease. <laughs> yeah, like, that's so, so it was really awesome. sweet. Yeah, I actually wrote a kid's book about when she was dying and during the pandemic, kind of about I don't want to say it's about death and dying, but it is. It's about life and not exactly about reincarnation, but it, it was really about how I think about some of the meaning of life. And that's coming out soon. And my son actually got to, we had some of the sketches and the, the words for it. So he actually, my son got to read it at her funeral last year, which was really sweet. Oh, yeah. Very wow. sweet. That's yeah. so sweet. I feel so grateful. I mean, and that's an example too of like, how do we take this awful situation of death that we all face and the fear that we all have and maybe try to transform it into maybe something beautiful, maybe something that can be helpful, but transform it into something. Does it take away my sadness? No, but it brings me more peace to create a book like that that helps me understand the cycle of life and death and helps my kids to understand it and hopefully some other kids too. Moving on to another question, if that's okay. Um, how can we know when a negative emotion should be sat with and worked through versus when it's holding us back and incapable of teaching us anything further? I think it always can, but that doesn't mean that it always can right now. I hope that's also not another dodge. Hopefully that's a bit more of like a, uh, you know, a koan or something to meditate on. But it's because I do think that our emotions 
they always do have something to teach us, but we don't know when they will. And sometimes it's not useful to dive into it or to visit it or certainly to wallow in it, but it's finding the timeline that works for us. And I think one of the things that contemplative practice, that mindfulness has in common with some of the sort of trauma work of people like Peter Levine and other folks like that is this idea of Peter Levine, we call it pendulating, kind of like dip in and dip back out mindfulness or Buddhist teacher like Tara Brock might call it touch and go. How do we like touch some of that pain and lean into it, but also let ourselves step back from it? But the more we can lean in and learn how to step into it and step out of it, it doesn't make that pain smaller is how I think of it, but it makes us stronger and bigger in response to that pain so that we can hold it longer. We can hold it and it seems smaller because our hands have grown, our strength has grown, and it doesn't overwhelm us or burn us or take us over in quite the same way. So I do think that pretty much all of our emotions outside of some more severe kind of mental health or mental illness sort of psychopathology can teach us something just as anything can be our teacher. Um, any challenging event or any boring thing can be our teacher, but we're maybe not ready for it to be our teacher. <laughs> right. Whether it's a really difficult and traumatic event or whether it's like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to meditate and there's like a fly buzzing around and it's really freaking annoying. Like maybe there's a lesson in it, but maybe this isn't the moment to learn it. So it's knowing to have the spaciousness of that it might not be the time, but also that we can lean in and learn how to lean out and not sink in, right? Those are differences yeah. to dip in and not sink in. And we have to have a certain amount of strength to be able to lean in or dip in and not have it be sinking in. That makes a lot of sense to me. In your work, you teach a lot of fundamental mindfulness practices and knowledge about deeply listening to yourself, which relates to what we're talking about and honoring your feelings. So why are so many of us, probably me included, coming to this knowledge so late in life? And I think it's amazing if people are like, why is mindfulness so popular right now? And I, I do feel like if you look at history, if you look at cultures, there's always two things moving in parallel, right? There's always an action and always a reaction. And sometimes that can feel really scary and sometimes it can feel really wonderful. And we have this action of we are all so busy, so overwhelmed, so stressed, so triple, you know, multitasking all the time. And I think that's exactly why we're seeing like, oh, what about single tasking? What about mindfulness? What about slowing down? Like that's the countercurrent to the larger current. We're seeing the popularity of this grow and discovering it and seeing also that some of our old ways of doing things, again, not the practices of religion, but maybe some of the ideologies that go along with religion don't work in quite the same way in this world. Some of those things that we grew up with and that the world is different enough. And so I think a lot of us then are discovering oh, maybe this mindfulness stuff. Oh, maybe this compassion and self-compassion stuff. Maybe some of this, there's something to it. And I think that's why it's emerging in these past few years, in these past few decades, as we get busier, crazier, more hectic, and more mentally ill because of those things. I think that's why it's starting to blossom. And that we're also seeing at our different life stages, I'm actually going through this right now. It's like, I feel like I've been unbelievably lucky which we might also you know, say unbelievably privileged in a lot of ways too with my career. And it's also too much. It's like, 
oh my gosh, I've like literally been invited to like 12 countries next year. That is so awesome. But I can't actually do that. <laughs> but, you know, like I'd be a mess and my kids would be a mess and my wife would be a mess. And it's so satisfying. But like at some point it's like, okay, I love what I do, but also I want more. But the more that I want is actually less. <laughs> and yeah. like, I've got all these great accolades. I've written books. I've done this. I've done that. But it's like, oh, there's something more I want. And that more is in fact not more, but is in fact less. Or is in fact, you know, not more broad but more deep and i think a lot of us when we've had a lot of our material needs met a lot of our relational needs met and then there's some kind of suffering or some kind of event that happens in our life when we realize that that's not in fact necessarily what matters we turn i think historically we would have turned to spirituality and i think a lot of people certainly still do or quote unquote find god or find religion but I think those of us that are maybe a bit more on the secular side of it find therapy and find mindfulness and find some of these other spiritualities or these other practices that can be really empowering and bring a lot of relief. They can go hand in hand too for some yes. people. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of crossover with practices like you were saying earlier. Meditation is in so many religions. Will you continue, do you think, making a priority in your life in writing to bring mindfulness to children? I actually met someone recently who was like, who did a lot of work around kind of parenting and kids and child development, and he wanted to shift gears. And he's like, I'm not doing any of those talks again. I'm doing all new stuff. I still feel like this is really rich for me. I feel like kids need this so much. I still want to keep up a lot of the consulting around this that I'm doing and a lot of the kind of scientifically spiritual things like gratitude and kindness and generosity and balance and wisdom and equanimity and finding ways to cultivate these in our kids. And yet at the same time, like, like there's other things I want to be doing too. I'm having a lot of fun. I've got a few more kids. I don't want to write any more books about kids, but I really want to write. I've got a few more books for kids that I'm really excited about, about emotions and about mindfulness and things like that that are coming over these next few years. And I'll probably still keep doing consulting in schools and stuff like that. But I'm also really interested in the best way to help. <laughs> I sort of joke, you know, the best way to create stressed out, miserable kids is to surround them with stressed out, miserable adults. The best way to right. create more mindful kids, surround them with more mindful adults and figuring out how can I make a difference in adult lives and parent lives and the lives of leaders and influential people. One thing I'm working on is some writing for college age students. And then I'm working on a book about communication and how adults can communicate better, whether it's in the workplace or whether it's in family, and maybe even a little bit on whether we can communicate better online. I'm a little skeptical about whether we'll be able to do that or not with social media, how it is, but we're speaking past each other so often. Yeah. I have a book idea for you. About, I don't know <laughs> right. if you could take another one. How I know many, you don't need how one. How book projects do you have? I've written 19. I've got like three that I'm working on. Wow. Oh my gosh. Do you want to hear my book idea for you? I do. Yeah, definitely. Um, how about for the military? That's a really interesting one. A lot of people are doing mindfulness in the military, but yeah. I don't think there's a book on it. But I know people are doing trainings. Yeah, for resilience well, and for post-traumatic growth. Yeah, there you go. Number Boom. 20. <laughs> <laughs> and I have a lot of military in my family. My grandfather was a general. My great-grandfather was a surgeon oh. general. My cousin is active duty. My other cousin actually just had her retirement ceremony wow. and went into public service. It's in my family it's a good for fit. sure. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. mental health issues in the military. Yes. They could use yeah. a book. Absolutely. Let's talk about some tips you have on making mealtimes both mindful and sacred. And why is that important to do so? 
as someone that travels a lot and loves traveling, like food is such a sacred cultural ritual. It has so much cultural meaning tied up in it. It is a sacred thing in so many cultures in which we bring people together. It is related to spirituality. It is related to healing. It is related to culture and traditions and ritual. And it is something that we can practice in ways that I, I think I wrote about it mostly in the body chapter in the book, but that can be a, a beautiful practice for just helping take care of our bodies and practice mindfulness and take care of our cultures and get into the moment and also practice gratitude for the people that have prepared the food and practice interconnection, whether you eat animals or not, but like with a connection to the earth and to the planet and to try to do that in as least damaging a way as possible and to try to do that in a least wasteful way as possible, as well as just taking time to eat a meal mindfully is an amazing and beautiful practice that's sometimes really a lot more fun than like sitting and focusing on your breath for 20 minutes. Yeah. These ways of bringing more awareness just to what we eat, I think can be really powerful too. Mm -hmm. Did you ever have this need to want to change the word mindfulness? Are you good with it? I do and I don't. I mean, I feel sometimes, you know, especially when I'm working with young people, that it can feel a little played out for them or they're like, oh, we did mindfulness. And the teacher just like had us like stare at a candle for five minutes. And it's like, no, it is so much more than that. Oh my God. <laughs> the word right now is very trendy and maybe it's even kind of peaked. But what I want is for these practices and these ideas to stick around right. before, during and after it's a trend because it will at some point not be as trendy and kind yeah. of hot as it is right now. And if we have to change the word, we have to change the word. And I even feel like as I do some work now, I talk about self-regulation skills and mindfulness being one of them. And sometimes they even lead with that, right? Rather than leading with mindfulness. The important thing to me is that we get these practices out there and anything that works out there. Like, right. you know, and really I hope the book emphasizes that too. It's like, I think there's a bit where I talk about, you know, someone's like, well, I dance. Is that mindfulness? It's like, well, yes and no. You know, like you can dance mindfully and dance is actually an amazing thing to do and you should do it whether it's mindfulness or not because right, right. You didn't research it with billions of dollars like we have mindfulness and so do what works and doing it mindfully or whatever you want to call it even better and again you do talk a lot about the interdependence of taking care of ourselves and, and totally makes sense like if we're not taking care of ourselves we can't be mindful so you talk in the book about the eating the movement the rest can you expand on that a little bit yeah, this came out of noticing. Actually, when I was thinking about myself when I was younger and sort of some of my getting better was actually like, why do I feel like crap? Like, oh, well, I didn't eat breakfast or lunch today. And like, maybe, maybe there's something to it that if I eat, I feel better. And it turns out there is. And like, maybe if I go to sleep around the same time and wake up around the same time that I feel better. And I did. Like, this was important for my own mental health. And in my 20s, I was like, everyone I knew was sleeping and I was like, I'm not going to wake up at 6am on a Saturday, but like, I'm going to set the alarm for nine or 930 because I actually know I feel better when I get around the same amount of sleep every night and starting to get exercise. I was like, everyone's like, exercise, you'll feel better. I ignored them, right? For years. And I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. When I <laughs> so I feel like in some ways, you know, a lot of the advice I would give my younger self and a lot of people is like, how do we get you eating a little bit better, sleeping a little bit better, moving your body a little bit and spending some time with other people? Those are actually the best medicine. You know, I don't want to be like that fixes everything. But I would say like a significant portion of the people that I work with, when I'm able to get them doing those three or four things more healthfully, they get a lot better. <laughs> and then right. if you're not doing those, but you want medication, Start doing those first, and then we'll look at something like medication. <laughs>
Chris, that was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for spending the time with Doro and me and all of our listeners today. This has been such a fun conversation. I just want to thank you for having me. And you're this is just great. so amazing and so awesome. <laughs> you're a joyful presence. We really and we're are. so excited about your book, how we grow through what we go through. You're gonna help so many people who are suffering from one thing or the other. It's just a joy to meet you and we're just excited to know you oh likewise <laughs> have me back anytime this is so fun and um thank you thank you for joining us on health gig we loved having you with us we hope you'll tune in again next week in the meantime be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com i'm trisha and i'm doro be well <laughs>